The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. brought on and asked a lot of prior guests to lead lag live to join the space so hopefully we'll get some really good cameos here as chris irons quote the raven doomberg and deer point all share their insights on the utterly utter insanity that we're all seeing and feeling my name is michael guyad publisher of the lead lag report joining me for the hour chris irons doomberg and deer point i want to do first just a quick intro for those who are not familiar with these three gentlemen. Let's start off with Doomberg. Just do a quick intro about yourself and what your primary focus is. Yeah, thanks, uh, Michael. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Awesome. Great to be here. I'm Doomberg, head writer of the Doomberg Substack. We write about energy and finance and geopolitics with a focus on energy, given our background. We're a team of consultants that had previously uh, assembled several decades of, of relevant experience in the commodity sector. And it must be said that it's uh, couldn't have picked a better time to start a substack with a focus on energy with the name Doomberg. We've been going strong for 16 or 17 months now, and it's been a blast. And always great to join your spaces, Michael. I'm looking forward to both a rigorous discussion and a, and a fun Q&A. Absolutely. Chris Irons, uh, who's got a phenomenal podcast and is uh, very much unfiltered, and I very much enjoy the way that he thinks. Uh, introduce yourself, Chris, here. Hi, I'm Chris Irons. I'm a former bartender, and I've dabbled in the world of finance for the last 10 years in various roles. And I don't really care for finance or the financial industry too much, yet here I am. I think the entire global economy is a giant Ponzi scheme, and I think everyone's an idiot except for me. Thank you. Like I said, I love Chris Irons. Let's go to Deerpoint last, and we'll get started here. Go ahead, Deerpoint. Yeah, currently I'm working for an institution in Canada, working in mutual funds, worked for some institutions in the U.S. as well. Most of my focus is, is on, let's say, rates and, and monetary economics. All right, so let's get into the the tease that I put on the pin tweet and the co-tweet with Doomberg, which is that all crises are equal, but some crises are more equal than others, which is a play on the all men are equal, but some men are more equal than others from Animal Farm. One of the things I often hear from advisors, individuals that I talk to is that, listen, mankind is full of these kind of extreme situations where it seems all doom and gloom and we still end up being okay. This year seems to be one of those years where multiple things are happening all at once, which on a standalone basis would be pretty big deals, but combined is really remarkable. You talk about the energy crisis, insane currency volatility, obviously they have super high inflation, geopolitical risks. 
the bond yield spikes, which we've never really seen in this speed, and of course, correlations. So I want to start off with Mr. Irons on if you, from your own way of looking at the world and your cynicism around finance, which I don't disagree with, do you think we're going to be okay? Do you think some of this stuff is overblown or are we really in some really historic moment here where everything is kind of coming together at once in a really nasty way? That's a really good question. And it's like perfect because I'm, I have an article that's coming out tomorrow morning on my blog and it'll be free so everybody can read it. But it's called a, a broken clock cries wolf twice a day. And the point of the article is, you know, it's a play on all the people that tell Austrian economists and tell skeptics and cynics that, oh, you know, you're just a broken clock that's right twice a day, or, you know, you're just crying wolf. And the gist of the article is that, you know, there's five things that I've laid out that are really unprecedented. Like you said, all of these things are all happening together. And so, you know, it takes a a strange type of ignorance, I guess, to assume that people are crying wolf and trying to raise a panic at a point like this when when all this stuff is going on. But I think it takes, you know, a different type of ignorance to just not notice it. We've just become so comfortable and so encapsulated in this narrative that everything is going to be okay, you know, and it's never a problem until it's a problem, which is what I said about COVID, you know, in, in the month leading up to before everybody, you know, panicked about COVID, the news was out there that COVID was happening. You know, coronavirus cases were being reported in China. People knew about it. It's just nobody chose to, like, act on it or report on it or accept it or realize that it could happen to us. And so, as usual, you know, we were behind the eight ball. And and the same thing, I think, is going to happen here. I think that rates rising, you know, 200 basis points over the course of five months is an insanely quick rise in rates, the likes of which we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. With the amount of debt that we have outstanding, I still don't believe that the rate hikes have, you know, the aftershocks of those rate hikes have made their way through the global economy yet. I think that's coming. I think equities are insanely overvalued still. Any really, you know, you look at market cap to GDP or you look at a Schiller PE ratio. I mean, reversion to the mean is still like, you know, 40, 50 percent lower from here. You know, you have this insane geopolitical crisis. You have essentially what appears to me to be the start of a cold war world war three between the brick nations and the west an economic war of sorts you know they're challenging the petrodollar you know you have russia going into ukraine you have china it looks like they're going to go into taiwan there's going to be all these political implications from it and we're just not in any way dealing with this in in any manner that's strategic we're not we're not skating to where the puck is going. We're skating to where the puck was like six months ago. And so you get all these brilliant solutions like price caps and, you know, (laughs) releasing a million barrels a day from the strategic petroleum reserve. And like, you know, just, just these one dimensional, non, just dumbass solutions really is the word I'm looking for to, to relatively complex problems. And so if we, you know, if our mindset doesn't change and we don't change the way that we're thinking about these things here going forward, I mean, I think there's a real case to be made that, you know, we're in very strange, unprecedented territory right now when it comes to markets, when it comes to the global economy. I guess in some respects, you could say that you can't blame people for not seeing what I think is coming. 
because it hasn't really happened. It's been able to be, you know, prevented. We haven't really had like serious austerity and a depression, I guess, in almost a century. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it's not going to happen. And so I think to just kind of pawn this off, like, hey, you guys are just being pessimists. You're just being skeptics. You're just being cynics. When the, the, the landscape of the global economy and the geopolitical landscape is shifting right ahead of our you know, right before our eyes at the same time, we're in an inflationary recession. It's strange, strange shit. And I defer to guys like Doomberg and, you know, George Gammon. I saw Bill Fleckenstein's on here, by the way. I hope somebody uh, lets him talk because I actually almost called him the other day. I had a question for him. I defer to guys like that for their expertise in these things. But I, I think we're in for some serious shit. So one of the uh, themes in Orwell's Animal Farm is apathy, that if everybody b- believes that nothing will change, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which we can talk about in terms of the case for democracy. But I also want to pivot that a little bit to Doomberg as far as the role of apathy over the last several years as it relates to the energy crisis. Talk about, Berg, from a societal perspective and political perspective, how apathy got us to this very nasty place when it comes to oil, natural gas, and obviously the energy crisis. I see Alex Epstein is here. Alex, you're more than welcome to join, join up as well to add some thoughts. But go ahead, Doomberg. Yeah, and, and I would say there are a few people more qualified to talk about what I'm about to describe than Alex Epstein. So if we could get him up here, that would be great. I think there are two sort of converging factors. One, in the Western world, we've grown further and further away from, you know, the median citizen has grown further and further away from what actually makes the economy run, which is the energy and commodity sectors. And they've grown accustomed to a life where, you know, everything is a few phone clicks away, food just shows up magically at your door. Every time you flick the switch, the light comes on and so on. That's sort of convergence number one. The second rail is we have for many decades, we're in a position of what we would characterize as excess primary energy. And most notably, the the boom in the shale gas and shale oil production in the United States and the resulting technological miracle that, that that produced gave us a period of relative energy abundance where any particular crisis in the economy was was more able to be paper, papered over. And and all that changed because of a couple of factors, the, the chronic underinvestment driven predominantly by ESG, the destruction of capital in the shell patch, it must be said. Many companies were burning debt to produce the incremental barrel of oil or you know a BCF of natural gas. And then of course, the COVID shutdowns bankrupted many companies in industry, caused a shock. And ultimately, we still haven't recovered from, from those sort of three events. And so now, unlike the prior decades, we find ourselves simultaneously in a period of chronic energy shortages with a populace that has no idea how stuff gets made or where stuff comes from. And so the long sort of lead time before sufficient political consensus is developed that we need to radically change our ways is exacerbating the situation. And in fact, our geopolitical enemies like Russia and China, as Chris alluded to, are carefully observing both both of those phenomenons and decided that now is the time for them to make their play. And so we're still a long way. I think apathy, people still like, we in the piece we put out last week called The Dead of Winter, we opened with some choice comments from people who are organizing this amazing Don't Pay UK campaign where they're trying to get you know, a million customers in, in the United Kingdom to simply not pay their energy bills as though that will solve anything. And and they just assume that one of the pictures we show is this, is this I'm sure well-meaning, but as we described her in the piece, totally naive young woman holding a sign that says, um, cheaper, cleaner, greener, fair energy now. And I don't know that you could fit more platitudes in six words than what she managed to do. And unfortunately for her, because of political incompetence, we fear 
that she and many others, including us, because there's no there's no safe space in a, in a total sort of collapse of European energy, it will affect the global economy and, and by extension, the United States. Things are about to hit the wall pretty soon. The news flow on this topic has been incredible. And so, you know, with that background, Michael, I, I turn it back to you. I see Alex Epstein came up. Alex, you know a thing or two about this space as well. I don't know if you want to add some thoughts to that. Yeah, thanks for having me on and great to be here with Doomberg and others. So my background is in philosophy, which really means I'm focused on thinking methods. And, and 15 years ago, a particular thinking error really struck me that made me motivated to get into this field, which I call fossil fuel benefit denial. As soon as I learned just a little bit about fossil fuels, including the issue of energy density, specifically with oil, and then fertilizers dependence on natural gas, it struck me that we had these unique and fundamental benefits of fossil fuels that our leading institutions and thinkers, and in fossil future, I call this our knowledge system, were ignoring. And, and one recent example that I point out a lot is Michael Mann, who's considered one of our leading designated experts. He's a climate scientist, climate activist. If you read his book on these issues, he literally ascribes no benefits to fossil fuels, including no agricultural benefits. So he only talks about negative side effects. He doesn't talk about benefits. And yet, as I've put it before, fossil fuels are the food of food. So I think my, my basic perspective is we have what I call a knowledge system that has been engaged in fossil fuel benefit denial for 15 plus years. And that has really handicapped us. And I think I talk about this in Fossil Future. And I, I have a, if you just go to my Twitter at Alex Epstein, I have a thread pinned about this. But I think the root of this with a lot of the thinkers is the reason they don't talk about the benefits is because they're not men, me, measuring benefits by a human standard. Their primary moral goal is eliminating human impact on Earth, and they see all industry and energy as ultimately going against that. And Because if you look at the world from a perspective of, I want to advance human flourishing, the, the benefits of fossil fuels are so crucial and can't be ignored. So I think we have this epidemic of fossil fuel benefit denial that's coming home to roost. And unfortunately, the same deniers are now deciding on the policy today. Plus, they are trying to CYA because they've caused the crisis. So there are these challenges ahead. But at least if we know what's going on methodologically, I think it helps. And, and by the way, that really does go to Animal Farm because a lot of Animal Farm is about this idea of you know, the animals or people, right, unthinkingly giving themselves to some kind of good faith belief about some kind of uh, talking point or some kind of idea. And the very system that they're they're rooting for ends up going very much against them and ends up exploiting them and you know, that's sort of the, the real story of, of Animal Farm. I want to go back to the apathy point. So to your point, you had a, a tweet that I saw about how we're having the worst productivity since 1960. I want you to lay out how do we get here on the productivity side. And again, I want you to relate that a little bit to apathy because I really do think that a lot of the problems that we have now are, it's not that they weren't foreseeable. Is it just people are not caring? Yeah, I, I think that goes as well kind of to the point that Doomberg was touching on. And that's kind of the shift across the economy away from actual, let's say, investment in, in real economic assets, whether it be in the oil and gas sector or the manufacturing and industrial base. And it was kind of this extreme you know, case of, of the subsidization of, of, you know, consumption relative to actually, you know, building productive capacity within the United States. 
and I this this kind of is where we've seen this this massive productivity shift where you know productivity in the US is declining while unit labor costs are rising right I mean unit labor costs I think are the highest since the mid 1980s so that would say that you know obviously nominal wages are increasing but productivity isn't rising and, and that's inflationary right like wages are, aren't inflationary it's it's productivity adjusted wages which is unit labor costs, those are rising extremely rapidly. And like I said, it all goes back to years of underinvestment where we've completely neglected the supply side. You know, within the United States, we don't have any investment. We've just continued to to try to subsidize consumption. And, you know, if even if we had to give out loans on the fiscal side, giving out loans, you know, to industries that actually produce something, I think would have been a much more favorable kind of economic policy instead of, you know, giving out loans just to try to increase aggregate demand. And I think that this is kind of where it all goes to the apathy part or, you know, lack of, of interest or, or enthusiasm in, in terms of just we don't really think that we need to do anything because we can kind of just offload everything to other nations and they'll just do our bidding for us and we can just continue to import cheap goods and, and consume. But I think that at this point, that kind of model is starting to, to come home to roost. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. I want to direct this to Alfonso here because Deerpoint hit a, a point here around this idea that inflation is really, really being driven by the wrong things, obviously not the wage side. And one of the things that's a very popular regurgitated statement, which I don't necessarily disagree with, is the idea that this is all driven by the Fed. But obviously, as is the case with most things, it's always much more complicated. And the interaction of the financial system to the economy and what it means for inflation, I think, is much more complex. Alf, feel free to unmute yourself and maybe kind of explain the linkage between the banking sector and inflation and explain why maybe that's not the full story and why the Fed might be in trouble because of it. Thanks, Michael, for hosting these very nice spaces. So the first thing I'm going to say is that in order to create inflation from the demand side, one of the quickest ways is to increase the amount of bank deposits that the private sector has at their disposal. And the Federal Reserve cannot do that. The government can and commercial banks can. The Federal Reserve can do something else, which is to try and make the access to credit cheaper. But if borrowers aren't going to borrow, they cannot make them borrow. On the other hand, if the government decides to increase the amount of money we have on our bank deposits, they unilaterally can. Government Banks can also lend, but they need a borrower. So the government is the most immediate source of credit creation and increasing bank deposits that people can go around and spend on inflationary items. That's one of the most misunderstood concepts in finance still today. The Federal Reserve alone cannot increase the amount of bank deposits that are in the system at any point in time. Now, the, what has been done in 2020, 2021, Michael, is that governments around the world and banks, which were effectively guaranteed by governments for potential losses, 
have extended a huge amount of credit to the private sector, which meant that, yes, the amount of spendable money that we all had went up by a mile incredibly fast. Now, yeah, that, that drives obviously a big push up in aggregate demand. We have seen inflation coming through. And if you look at how much of that inflationary pressures have been driven by demand and how much by energy on supply, for instance, supply bottlenecks in Europe or in the US, what I just said is reflected in the numbers too, because the, the European inflationary spike, where European governments and European banks were much less aggressive than the US, was only estimated to be roughly 20% demand driven and 75-80% energy and supply bottlenecks driven. In the US, the aggregate demand contribution tends to be roughly 50%. The New York Fed has run a study recently. So yes, fiscal stimulus drives cyclically aggregate demand higher because it increases the amount of money people can spend. Right now, Michael, we're seeing right the opposite. We are seeing fiscal drugs from all over the world. US is a case in point where the last fiscal stimulus has been seen in March 2021. That's quite a while ago. We are now discussing some packages, but the inflationary impulse of these packages is much lower and it's spread over time compared to literally sending checks at home for people. And in Europe, we are also seeing some sort of inflationary fiscal stimulus to offset potential demand destruction from energy. It's a different fiscal stimulus than outright increasing the purchasing power of the private sector. And also, most of these packages in Europe are effectively distribution of existing resources. So cupping the profits that you know companies have generated out of the energy inflation we have seen lately, rather than outright adding bank deposits to the private sector. So we are now seeing the other side of the equation, which is indeed driving a slowdown in global demand. I want to go back to Chris for a moment, since we're talking about the government side here, because I've always made this argument that whether you're Republican or Democrat, I'd argue that both parties effectively are good at one thing, which is increasing debt despite all their rhetoric. And that creates illiquidity, illiquidity as well as liquidity, right? And one, again, one of the themes of Animal Farm is the, the perils of power, right? Sort of the idea that no matter what, you're going to have corruption at the top, independent of good intentions. Chris, I know you, you rant on this quite a bit as well, but talk about how you're viewing the role of government in the crisis in terms of not only their response, but their culpability in it. Well, let me just go back to what somebody was saying about apathy. And I think COVID was such a like great example of apathy, as I mentioned before. And I see Chris Martinson's on, and he did awesome, awesome stuff. He was like one of the only people to sound the alarm early on COVID. You know, the the issue wasn't that it wasn't that the the information wasn't readily available. It was just that people chose not to give a shit about it, maybe because it didn't affect them right away. You know, last summer, I remember being in Atlantic City and I wrote an article called The U.S. is Turning into a Third World Country. Now, Atlantic City has always kind of looked like a third world country, so that's not my point. But the point was, I, you know, I had just come back from San Francisco. I had gone to San Francisco like every year for the last couple of years. And San Francisco had gotten noticeably worse. You know, the area where like the cable car used to be and the tourists and the Gap flagship store. And I mean, just shut down, boarded up, all of the coffee shops closed. This was like peak COVID. I think when I first went back, it was 2021, right? So we still like now stuff's kind of opened up almost completely again. But I guess we were still doing like some of the lockdown stuff. But you could really see the effects of, of the lockdowns and the effects of, you know, poor political oversight in in San Francisco, to put it 
nicely, I guess. The city had just been destroyed. And, you know, so I flew home and I went to the beach. I went to Atlantic City. And one of the first things I saw on the boardwalk was at this like crab shack. You know, they had a sign up in the window like we don't have crabs due to rising prices, you know. And I was like, wow, I never really seen that before. And this is like before the official inflation numbers started to really rocket higher. But here we were seeing these little signs. And I also remember on my trip to San Francisco going to the Target in San Francisco around the corner from my hotel to just get a couple of basics. And there were entire store shelves that had been cleared out. Like areas were like just like the the pharmaceuticals, the, uh, you know, I was looking to buy a sweatshirt at one point because it was cold. And like the the men's clothing section was just like they, they didn't have anything like the, this. The shelves were empty and it looked like half the store was empty. So I come back and I see this sign about, you know, rising prices on the boardwalk. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, and that's what prompted me to write this article. Like, hey, does anybody else notice, you know, what's going on? Does anybody else notice like the changes that are happening right before our eyes? And this is also coming after all the civil unrest that we saw, you know, stemming from the George Floyd incident and, you know, politicians not trying to stop that or prevent it, but what seemed like actively encouraging it at points. And now here we are a year later. And, you know, it's still as though it's happening before our very eyes and nobody even notices this. This talk about productive capacity is is relevant because we don't make anything here in this country. I mean, remember we were trying to get some of the, some pharmaceutical ingredients that we needed to make drugs for COVID. And we couldn't do that because, you know, they were in China and the supply chain was gummed up or they didn't want to play ball with us or whatever reason. But the point is we just, we couldn't do it here. And so here we are going about our daily lives every day. We go to the stores and we see, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, a a few more items not on the shelves. We see prices, you know, rising again every month, right? It's like, all right, we're celebrating gas coming down a little bit after it rose, you know, to $120 a barrel. I mean, I guess it's okay if you want to celebrate the, the small decline at the very, very top of the oil chart now. But the point is that this stuff is happening right in front of our faces. And everybody's kind of walking around with this, you know, with these faces like, all right, you know, it's going to get better. Things will just kind of revert back to the norm. People have no idea that, you know, this could still very well take a drastic turn for the worse, you know. And I look at things like China, you know, closing up due to more COVID lockdowns. And you look at this thing with the Nord Stream pipeline a couple of days ago where Russia just saying like, you know, we're just turning it off, you know. <laughs> and and to me, I see those things and I think to myself, like, you know, if China and Russia really wanted to put the screws to the West in terms of not only energy and Europe, but in terms of not, not only energy, but also, you know, the things that we need to lead our daily lives, like most of which comes from China. You know, we don't produce a lot of it here. They have the capacity to do that. And so with every day that passes, we're slipping further and further into this very precarious situation in this country. And it's it's happening right before our eyes. And in my opinion, it's cause for enormous alarm. I think that we're in an extraordinarily precarious situation. Not only do we not have any productive capacity and record levels of debt, you know, but our, the only thing that has hold, held this entire house of cards together has been the fact that we've been able to just, you know, lean on the dollar and just, you know, 
like and the dollar is like this like donkey that we keep piling people onto and, and and you know whipping to try to get us to the top of Mount Everest but it's like the fucking thing's getting tired right like and and you know we still have another 20,000 feet to go and we can't pile any more shit on the back of this donkey and the donkey is the US dollar and now all of a sudden you know Russia and China and these BRIC nations are saying you know the era of the petrodollar could be you know could be long gone and so it's like then what do we do so I think we're staring in an exceptionally worrisome situation right in the face. Like, it's not like you go to your local CBS, see what's missing. Like, it's right there. See what the price of a cup of coffee is. It's right there. So I know that didn't answer your question, which I don't even remember. No, no although, 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 although I'll, tell you I'll tell you something, Chris. That's funny because you, you mentioned the dollar as the donkey. And one of the, one of the quotes from Animal Farm is donkeys live a long time. None of you have ever seen a dead donkey. Right, just more of a, a funny a side note. But you mentioned Chris Mortensen, Martinson, who I've had on a, on a prior space with Lead Lag Live. And Chris, if you're there, I'd love for you to, to unmute yourself because your theme of peak prosperity was maybe you can argue early with hindsight, but spot on. And then I'm going to go back to Doomberg. And I've got a number of really great speakers here. I'm going to try my best to rotate and give everybody equal time. But go ahead, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here with everybody. This is like the all-star lineup of people in this space. And and if I could add something to you know, all the amazing commentary without repeating it is that really this is a time where we have a complex situation, right? Not complicated. Sure, global trade's complicated. But I mean, our economy is a complex system. And here's what we know about complex systems. And I would invite everybody to start looking into this. We know a couple things. The first, complex systems owe their order and their complexity to the flow of energy through them. So just taking that one insight, I can tell you that starving a 400 million person complex economy and continent with complex societies and behaviors and political and social constructs under that, when you starve it for energy, like is going to happen for is happening in Europe, it's going to simplify. And here's the other thing we need to know about complex systems. You can't predict what they're going to do. You can only watch what emerges. So generally, I can tell you they're going to simplify, but I can't tell you what, but I'm alarmed beyond measure to Chris's point here that people aren't really noticing. Like when I hear that aluminum manufacturing is down 70% or the number two commodity glass is just down or that, you know, tiles cost a thousand percent more to separate the, the clay in, in Spain, whatever the, these things are, it's happening at breakneck speed. I can guarantee you this, this is way beyond the capacity of current leadership to even begin to fashion responses to. I don't care what they decide if they're going to cap oil prices. I don't even know what that means. Or they're going to regulate, you know, who gets to use the gas. It, it's it's beyond anybody's capacity to manage this at this point in time. And I think people need to just open their eyes up if possible, recognize that and become resilient. You know, that's been my mantra since, you know, peak prosperity. I launched it in 2008 with the crash course. And, and I've seen this coming for a long time. And it's because we're fundamentally operating with the wrong narrative, which is, Hey, we'll figure something out. Technology will figure something out. Well, listen, technology could have figured something out if we'd given it the appropriate weighting and approach. And, you know, we didn't send 48 billion to Ukraine. We, we put 4.8 billion into a, a prize for certain battery energy density. Magic would have happened, right? We're just making the wrong choices. And because of that, I think I'll concur with the sentiment that we're, we're already past the time where we get to reel this back in and do something intelligent. I think now we have to just get ready to buckle down, watch what emerges, be ready for anything, because whatever's unfolding is, is already 
in motion. So that's what I wanted to add here. No, that's great. And, and stay on, Chris. And by the way, everybody here, please make sure you follow every single one of the speakers up here. I am sincere in saying that more and more people need to pay attention to each of these gentlemen. Whether you agree or disagree, part of knowledge and, and increasing your knowledge is, is getting as much thoughts from different people as possible. Well, again, whether you agree or disagree. I want to go to Doomberg because Chris mentioned complex systems. And when you're in a complex system, chaos theory ends up overruling pretty much everything else, which means that you end up having butterfly effects. Small changes have big impacts in complex systems. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Doomberg, on what was the butterfly effect when it comes to oil, net gas, energy markets in general? What was the the spark? What was that butterfly flapping its wings that really got us to this place in, in, in history? So actually, it's a great question. And I go back to some of the pieces we wrote all the way last year. You know, people forget um, and it's easy to simply ascribe the current crisis to the war in Ukraine. Current crisis actually began in the spring of 2021, when for a variety of reasons, Europe neglected to fill their storage of natural gas ahead of the winter of 2021, 2022. And again, we all just sit here and assume that this is a crisis of Putin's making. And that's, of course, part of the sort of political CYA that one should expect. But the price of natural gas in Europe spiked to above $60 per million beach last December, three months before Putin's tanks and troops rolled over the, the border in Ukraine. And you began to see significant gyrations in the price of natural gas long before that. And, and it's difficult for people to remember, but as early as March of 2021, natural gas in Europe, the Dutch TTF contract was trading hands for less than $6 per million BTU. So if you look at the curve of natural gas, the markets were signaling a substantial crisis long before the war. And in fact, we have argued that the bundling of European natural gas was just the opening Putin needed to feel like he had all of the leverage. And that, I believe, combined with some of the analysis of Peter Zion, who makes some pretty compelling arguments about closing demographic windows, that Putin decided it was kind of now or never. And my opponents will never be weaker and I will never be stronger on a relative basis. And so if I don't do it now, my options only become worse over time. But literally in March of 2021, natural gas was trading for six bucks per million BT in Europe and what, two bucks here in the United States. And the gap is roughly, you know, the price of transporting, transporting natural gas in normal times. Um, and so, you know, that is the butterfly that flapped its wings. You know, back then, perhaps um, when gas started to rise in the middle of the summer to, you know, $9 million BTU, that was considered, oh, very expensive. And we'll just, we just won't fill our tanks at the same rate and we'll take our time and the gas will always be there and we'll backfill with LNG and so on and so on and so on. And then the crisis really began to unfold in early October of 2021, which is when we wrote our first piece on it called Putin's Fools Rush In, which we read again in preparation for the piece we published last week. At the, the price spiked over $40 per million BTU. Back then, that was an unthinkable number. But then just last week, when fears of Putin closing down Nord Stream 1 permanently permeated into the market, we saw prices hit $100 per million BTU. And as we've said many times, just for those that are unfamiliar, if you multiply that number by six, you get the rough equivalent of what the price of natural gas means in oil of barrel energy equivalency. And so today, you know, natural gas in Europe was up 20%, up as high as 35 to 40% based on the permanent shutdown of Nord Stream 1, closed at 7250, or it's still trading, I guess, 7250, $72.50 per million BTU. You multiply that, that number by six and you end up with like $450 oil. So it, it's, it's, a true crisis, but the, but the butterfly that flapped its wings that caused the sort of chaotic unfolding of the events 
um, that we saw here was truly Europe failing to get a handle on its storage uh, ahead of last year's winter. And we would argue if they had done so, and if the crisis of natural gas had not exploded onto the headlines, we seriously doubt Putin would have been encouraged to play the hands we gave him. I want to go to Andy Constant for a moment because I always make this point that path matters more than prediction. And when you're in a single crisis, let alone multiple crises, you, you don't choose the cards you dealt, you choose to play the game, right? So you still have to figure out what to do from an asset allocation perspective, investment perspective in this kind of environment, because risk off is treasuries. Treasuries have not acted risk off. And all these correlations, which are based on all this back-tested research, have broken down. Paul uh, Macro, Paolo Macro did a great thread that I retweeted that, that touched on that. Andy, you've done a lot of work in the hedge fund space, in the portfolio management space. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how do you think about executing trades? How do you think about what to invest in when you've got so many butterflies flapping their wings and so many tails wagging? And if Andy is not there, we'll, t- we'll, we'll do that same question to uh, uh, Le Shrub. Well, I mean, the way I deal with it is I just look at the, I try to see where there's a symmetry and where there's going to be the biggest asymmetry and where people are just skewed way towards one side. And I try to see if I can make a profitable trade on that particular point. I don't know if it makes sense. So I would look at all the things happening out there, see where there's a symmetry in one of them. I mean, not trying to be the most contrarian, but where I could make the most money, then weigh the factors, weigh the arguments qualitatively and see if it's worth taking the bet. You know, as the example for I'm tweeting now about, you know, two weeks ago when I came on your spaces, I think I was the most bearish person in the room. And today I'm actually a bit more, you know, have a ray of sunshine on Europe. So I'm buying calls on Europe because I think, you know, everyone's expecting an apocalypse. So if some power price reforms take place and power prices collapse, I think, you know, there could be some asymmetry there. So that's an example of how I see it, if it makes sense. And I can expand on that if you want. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and Andy, I see. I saw that you DM me, Andy. If you're back, if you want to add some thoughts to that, and maybe kind of respond a little bit to Shrub, and then I'll go to Deer Point. And again, I'm going to try to bring up as many people as I can. There's a 10 speaker limit, and there's so many great fault leaders here that find a way to manage everything. But go ahead, Andy. Yeah. So on August 1st, I noticed the quarterly refunding announcement came in with a $840 billion issuance calendar for the second half of 2022. At the same time, as we all know, and I think everyone knows that Fed is going to be shrinking the balance sheet at $95 billion a year a month through runoff. And that information to me got me very short the markets, short all assets. I went short gold. I went short Euro stocks, SPX, and NDX. And I think a lot of people have then, and since then, personally, since then, a diversified portfolio of assets, not just stocks, but stocks, bonds, gold, commodities, et cetera, have all cheapened by over 500 basis points and are actually fairly close to where the a portfolio of assets, not stocks, but a portfolio of assets, were in the June lows. And so at this stage, 
I think the easy money as it relates to front-running quantitative tightening and this big issuage calendar has been made. I covered all my shorts. I didn't get the bottom. No one ever does. But comfortable now, at least considering the possibility that, as Shrub said, assets have more symmetric sort of returns at this at these pricings. That said, the quantitative tightening is a real thing. It got front run, and that was catalyzed by, not caused by Powell's words at Jackson Hole, but catalyzed by Powell's words. I'll come back to that in a sec. But it will be a headwind for assets, for stocks, for bonds, for everything that you know, has a risk premium until it ends. And so the question is, is, you know, at this price, are you fighting the Fed? Well, you're always fighting the Fed because it's a headwind, but not necessarily at this price. And so I'm getting a little more constructive of assets, particularly because this week, this coming week, there are no auctions. And so there won't be any issuance. And that to me is a fairly good point to buy some stocks and some bonds, which I've done in a small way. Lastly, as it relates to Powell, you know, his words were longer for higher for longer. The market had already fully discounted those words. The euro dollar contracts had already taken out and the SOFR contracts had already taken out the cuts that the pivot people had priced into markets. And so I actually don't think Powell was the cause. I think it's this front running of QT. And that has gone a long way very quickly. I want to I want to transition that point, Andy, around sort of trying to be optimistic that you know you and Lashrub that sentiment versus some of the things that Deerpoint put out on his timeline. Deerpoint, you've been making this point that liquidity is evaporating, and Michael Howell from Cross Border has been doing a lot of great work on that. I want you to talk about liquidity conditions here for the audience and whether there's any hope that there's maybe a reliquification, which is kind of hard to imagine in a global tightening cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been looking at Europe a lot, and my European counterpart. Feel free to for, to, to disagree with me, but the um, the things that I've been looking at first of all is is the the failures to deliver from the primary brokers, and I mean those are extremely elevated, right? I, I think that is already a sign of kind of deteriorating liquidity conditions or, or some kind of liquidity event brewing. I was looking at the end of the month for August, the the swap lines between the ECB and the Fed those spiked some thirteen percent, and I think that you can start to see liquidity events starting to deteriorate. And I know Alf just put up a good graph as well, looking at European bank credit default swaps. But if you start to even look at, you know, the the cross-currency basis swap, which, you know, just to keep things simple is, let's just say a a kind of a a measure of of dollar shortage or the premium, you know, accounted for there being a dollar shortage within the, within, you know, the currency pair, whether you're doing Euro USD. I mean, that's at some of the most negative levels since the, the beginning of the pandemic. So I, I think that even if you start to look at, you know, Bloomberg WERP, I, I do know that after Powell spoke, the structure for the federal funds futures curve changed slightly, but it, it was still minimal and is still pricing in cuts into Q2 of, of 2023. And I, I think that if you start to look around the, you know, different kinds of rates markets, if you start to look at what we're seeing in, in the forward rate agreements minus the overnight index swaps, which is kind of a proxy for for bank stress within the United States that's 
elevated, not elevated to, to levels of like, let's say, concern yet. But if you look north of the border where I am right now in Canada, that spread is now higher than it was during the, the GFC. If you start to look at, you know, that, that same swap in Europe, it's also extremely elevated. And, you know, that comes on the back, obviously, of, of rising credit default swaps across the banking sector, whether it be, you know, Credit Suisse, Deutsche, Unicredit, the like, or, or just the overall aggregate index. So I, I think that liquidity conditions are, are pretty bad. And I, I obviously this is first a function of, you know, I would say more or less QE and and actually the the taking out of US dollar collateral and you know there being this shortage. I guess you could say, well, QT should lead to rehypothecation of that liquidity, but to, to what extent would that be sufficient for the global financial market? I, I don't know. And then kind of my final point would be, you know, if you start to look at the inversion on the euro dollar futures curve, I, I would still say that that is again not as much a, a proxy of saying, okay, the Fed's going to cut, but more of looking at it as a way to say, okay, there is some sort of liquidity event brewing. And where is that going to come from? I, I think that it's actually going to come from Europe. But, you know, the fact that you're seeing, you know, increases on a, on a week over week basis in, in swap lines between the Fed and the ECB, I, I don't think is a, a net positive sign for, you know, liquidity conditions or things getting better anytime soon. I want to go to Tracy here because again, one of the themes around Animal Farm is, or one of the, the key dynamics of Animal Farm as a book is the usage of propaganda as a way of increasing fear and forcing changes that may not be good for society. And you can argue that there's a degree of propaganda in every industry, but there has been a lot of propaganda when it comes to ESG. And I know you want to respond to Tracy to a lot of what Doomberg said as well, but I want to hear your thoughts on how the role of the ESG propaganda also probably got us into this nasty place in terms of not just oil and gas, but also, again, in terms of liquidity? Well, in terms of everything, basically. I mean, ESG is a, is a very nice concept, right? But in reality, it's just not working as people in ha had intended. I mean, even if we just as simple as look at a bunch of these ETF baskets, right? Ha ha there's half oil companies in them. There's companies that have nothing to do with ESG. And so it was a great sell. And the, and the money managers and those ETFs charged a lot of money for those, right? They charged more fees than anybody else. We're seeing that sort of come to an end. You know, we're seeing some ESG funds even drop ESG off their, off their name now because they're just not they're overhyped. They're just not getting the returns that they did at one time. Again, because they're not, they're just not performing well. And there's, you know, they, again, uh, as you said, there's a lot of propaganda around it. And I think people are kind of realizing that now. And we're also just starting to see some banks start to come around, right? Jamie Dimon came the other day and said, we can't stop you know, drilling for oil. And JP Morgan was one of the banks that said, we're not going to fund projects anymore. So, you know, we're starting to see the banks also slowly come around because ESG has kind of become, a, you know, a losing trade at this point. I want to get my friend Daniel Lakai here as somebody who is in Europe and has written several books on the Fed and has also with Diego Perilla talked about the energy markets. Daniel, feel free to riff a little bit on how bad things are looking in Europe and if a lot of these tweets that we see around electricity bill bills and their increases is maybe not the way it is or if it's going to be a lot worse. Hi, it's already worse. 
I spoke with with a, a group of small and medium enterprises from Italy and Spain and on last week and and one of them was saying that their gas bill had gone from 2400 euros to 24000 already and this has already happened this is this is past this is not what we're going to see in the future with the volumes from russia being cut the situation is very very bad because particularly in the european union there is zero level of self criticism the european union has just announced and some the ft this afternoon that they'll look to get sweeping powers to override businesses or in the private sector in times of crisis and the definition of crisis is entirely up to them it's very dangerous as well because the problem in the electricity market in europe is a problem of intervention i wrote about it this weekend and because it's extremely enraging to hear that they're going to intervene the power markets and this will be positive well the, the, the most intervened power market in the world is the european union one in which governments decide the supply of co2 permits and in which the 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 construct of the electricity market has been to increase bills for households because of ideological reasons from the energy mix to the uh, to the household bill just to give you an example in germany an average household pays only 24% of their bill only 24% is the cost of energy the rest are surcharges levies taxes and regulated costs so the situation becomes worse why because one the european union came out of the pandemic crisis in a worse shape than the united states and other developed economies the, the the recovery is much slower with much slower job creation and certainly with much lower productivity growth which is the most important thing the second reason is because the energy problem is not going to be solved with intervention it's going to be worsened by intervention the solution that they're, that they're pr- proposing is a massive tariff deficit that destroyed the spanish electricity market and household bills with it and the third is that the european union has not yet recovered from the financial crisis and the level of non performing loans remains very elevated compared with the united states so energy mm, slow recovery and poor and misguided policies are not helping so i uh, i'm going to disagree I, i'm going to uh, my my net short position on europe is is not just kept but but increased so and i know dumberg's got to leave in a, a few minutes so let me just put a plug in for dumberg everyone sign up to substack he's really got some phenomenal research here and we're going to try to rotate around i'm going to have this go on for another hour hour and a half so and get some other speakers here but Bloomberg on the on the intervention point I've been losing my mind as it seems you have as well around some of these some of these asinine things that different policymakers are are doing in response to higher fuel and energy costs in the US and Europe you yeah, I, I see you put the anti logic which I love with the little trademark at the top there let's talk about some of those intervention measures is there any hope that any of this stuff ends up actually helping or is it going to be just more fuel to the energy crisis fire I I totally concur with the previous speaker. I mean, the reason why we developed the law of anti-logic and the piece we published last Thursday and maybe I could figure out a way to, to put it in the nest called the dead of winter is is that we anticipate that the governments will uh, at every possibility make the very worst decision possible and and the 
move to take essentially full control over the private sector in times of crisis that was alluded to is, is something that's going to make its way prominently into our next piece, which we're going to publish on Wednesday. Tentative title of that is Europe on Tilt. It is truly basically, well, it's the next step towards full socialization and, and a return to communism across, well, Eastern Europe that had it and, the, and Western Europe that, that seems to be in love with it. Um, there's no way that centralized planning by the same bureaucrats and let's just call them idiots that that put Europe in this situation is somehow going to be helpful. And so the law of anti-logic states that they will do everything in their power to make demand destruction hard, i.e. they will bail out consumers and small businesses and they will flood the market with, with fiat in an effort to, quote, make things right. They will suppress supply. So we're seeing reports out of Germany that they're going to hand 65 billion euros or more to German citizens by taxing what they're calling you know, windfall profits on their energy sector. And we believe that these actions will lead to a massive rightward tilt in European politics, as well as an outburst of protectionism as citizenry of various countries decide that the idiocy of the elites of the European Union aren't worth, sac aren't worth sacrificing their own families for. And you know, it's only a matter of time that we see the citizens of, of Europe revolt. And we shall see, you know, just as we're talking, Michael, this amazing story hit Spiegel that basically Havoc is not going to extend the life of the German nuclear power plants in the face of the greatest energy crisis in this generation. Their, their plan is to permanently shut down one and hold two in reserve, ready to supply electricity if they need it by March of 2023. At some point, it becomes difficult to feel sorry for the people of Europe if they tolerate such idiotic leadership. And there's no other word to describe it. I mean, it's truly idiotic that in the, in the face of a massive energy crunch, still now, Germany has not suffered enough pain to make the simple decision to keep three perfectly operable nuclear power plants running and to restart three that they just shut down. And so I forget who the speaker was. That's long call options on Europe. I mean, it, it's a market and there's no question that sentiment is very heavily one-sided. And if you're a sentiment trader, these types of opportunities generally pay off very well. I would just caution that this is pretty extraordinarily what, what we're seeing. I could never have imagined when we first started about writing this crisis, you know, 12, 14 months ago that we would have the damage that we've already seen, have the train coming down the track at you know 100 miles an hour that everyone can point to, and still there's no sanity coming out of the European leadership. It's truly mind-boggling. It's truly staggering. It's, you know, what, can, what, else, what else can be said? And look, Michael, I do have to drop off. Really appreciated the conversation. Excellent guest of speakers and, and looking forward to the next time. Yeah, and again, everybody, please make sure you follow Doomberg and check his subject. I see also Alex also need to leave soon. Tracy, go ahead, and then I'm going to get Alex now. I've got Tracy. I'm sorry, I just wanted to add something positive because this all sounds doom and gloom, and it is pretty horrible, but we are, are mostly all investors here. And so and when we're looking at the European markets, one of the things that they're talking about right now is curbing the derivatives market. They want to suspend derivatives trading. Well, that said, if you can't get liquidity in one market, you have to go to another. So people are going to have to hedge somewhere. And we're going to see more trading probably in the U.S. markets if the European markets are unavailable. So there is opportunity there through this whole thing as investors, even though that sounds really callous. But, you know, just start thinking ahead on how can I make money out of these opportunities, even though they're horrible. I don't want to sound like they're horrible, but... Again, you know, we've seen liquidity fall off a cliff in the in the U.S. as far as the whole energy sector is concerned. So this could be an opportunity where we see more liquidity in these markets, which would help that sector. 
Yeah, no, 100%. I think that's important, right? It's like every crisis is an opportunity. And now we have multiple crises at once, so there will probably be multiple opportunities as well. But I see Alex, Alf, and Chris all need to leave soon. So I want to get to the three of them, and then I'm going to try to bring up some others. We'll go for another hour or so. Alex, again, going back to the animal farm idea here, deception is a key component of animal farm. There's a lot of deception, you can argue, when it comes to the energy space. I know you've had and done several media appearances where you counter some of the deception and emotional responses to some of the things that you've been banging the table on for a while. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, Alex, on what is the source of deception when it comes to the oil and gas space? Because I think it's a little bit too easy to say it's based on politics. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like with many things, there are proximate causes and ultimate causes, and, and both are pretty sophisticated, but I'd say the proximate cause is what I call our knowledge system. So the, the set of institutions we rely on to give us expert knowledge and guidance. And as I mentioned earlier, they are rife with the fossil fuel benefit denial. And then I think the root of that is that many of our thought leaders have a deep hostility toward human impact on nature as such. And that leads to a devaluing of industry because industry impacts nature a lot. So some people think of it as like really, I mean, you see this with, with uh, there was a fusion incident decades ago where people thought fusion was on the, on the horizon. And then you had these leading environmental thought leaders saying, hey, you know, this would be terrible. The, the worst thing ever would be a totally clean, abundant, cheap source of energy because of what we would do with it. And one of them described it as giving an idiot child a machine gun. So I think you can't understand the whole thing without understanding the hostility toward human impact. And then that has pervaded our whole knowledge system. Just one, two really quick thoughts. So one is that it's really important that the right people get implicated for this energy crisis. And I just I just retweeted or posted something on Twitter, which you can check out about me predicting this and talking about it a year ago. It's really important that it was obvious that this was going to happen and that it is fundamentally political in nature. We artificially restricted the supply of fossil fuels. So that's one thing I think we should stress. And then the other thing I think is important is to, to not equate climate change with climate catastrophe. It's that equation or conflation that has led to these reckless crash policies that made no sense because people think, oh my gosh, the earth is going to burn. And if you really recognize, no, wait a second, we're actually safer than ever from climate. We do impact climate, but we also master climate. Then you can think about this in a level-headed, non-panicked way. I think that's important for all advocates of energy to know because sometimes I see them conceding climate catastrophe, but that doesn't really make sense. And for more on that, you can check out my extended work on it. Yeah. And again, everybody, please make sure you follow Alex, check out his books as well. Really a a phenomenal thought leader in the space. And by the way, speaking of the spaces, I am going to have this on all your favorite podcasts soon enough as I keep on releasing the prior ones I've been doing with different thought leaders. I want to go to Daniel Lakai for a final word since he's got to leave and then go to Chris, who also has to leave. But again, we're going to keep the space going. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, I just wanted to add to to Alex's point how dangerous the situation is in terms of allowing politicians that have made very significant mistakes to try to present themselves as the solution to those irrevocable mistakes. And and we've just seen it in Germany that they that they decided to continue with the shutdown of nuclear. And we're going to see it as well with other countries. So the, the an important factor here in terms of investment is 
that many people are seeing this as, as an extraordinary situation that will correct itself and that the European Union goes back to being leader in global growth and in the developed economies. However, the risk is, unfortunately, that this goes on for a number of years. And the same way that the European Union has not corrected a very badly managed and horribly designed CO2 permit market, it is very unlikely to change what is going to be a system that will inevitably increase power bills for everybody. So my point is that if we add to all these risks, the most important risk for equities in Europe, which is the earnings cliff that is coming in 2023, there is absolutely no way that consensus estimates of EPS and operating margins for 2023 are even close to being over in terms of downward revisions. So I'm staying away from that environment because ultimately those indices are comprised of companies that are going to be decimated by intervention and regulation. No, that's a great thought. And also, everybody, please make sure you follow Daniel Lakai and check out his books as well. Also a phenomenal thought leader. I want to go to Chris Irons, and then we've got a few more others here. This is Chris has to leave suit. Chris, you, I know you rant on politics. You've joked correctly so around the insanity around some of the stuff with Nancy Pelosi. And I don't want to get too far into that. But a lot of this is also around the perils of power, which again goes back to Animal Farm. You, you pride yourself, correct me if I'm wrong, as being somebody who's not sort of in the traditional finance realm. I'm curious to hear just from your own experiences, how do how do people that are not in the field view what's going on? Is are they are they aware of it the way that we are here on FinTwit? What's the response? Talk about that dynamic for a bit and anything else that you want to add for the final minutes here for you. Well, look, a lot of what we're talking about, this idea of, you know, taking nuclear power plants offline in Germany right now in the midst of this crisis is breathtaking stupidity. It is just it's unbelievable stupidity. And then, you know, what Tracy was talking about earlier when we were talking about ESG and all the money that poured into ESG and how that's kind of turned out to be, you know, an enormous scam. This is what happens. And by the way, I concur with what everything all the, the, the last couple of speakers have said about, you know, how important it is to make sure that we realize the people that have served us up this disaster are not going to be the ones that serve us up the solution. But this this whole mess is what happens when you govern based on, you know, your emotions and your feelings instead of logic and pragmatism. And that's what we're seeing where, you know, Germany just can't get over the fact that, you know, I don't know, Fukushima happened. They can't get over the fact that, you know, nuclear comes off as perhaps, you know, some type of dirty solution that could, you know, cause a natural disaster. You know, I've read some of the criticism of the nuclear. Most of them, you know, most of them surround a couple of isolated incidents. But, you know, nuclear power is extraordinarily safe and it's exceptionally efficient and it's green. It's the solution to what everybody is clamoring about that they're looking for in terms of, you know, green, sustainable energy. Yet nobody is adopting it. And so even when even when being backed into the corner that Europe is being backed into now, they still can't stomach it. They still can't say you know, all right, well, maybe, you know, all right, well, we're going to, you know, we'll leave two on for emergencies only. It's like, would you just embrace one, you know, 1% of reality here and, and do the right thing. And that, you know, 
place to what Doomberg said about anti-logic. That's something I've written about before. The government is going to make generally all of the wrong solutions, all of the wrong decisions before it reluctantly, begrudgingly gets to an effective solution. And by that time, it's usually too late. And so this is what happens when we govern based on our feelings instead of based on what's reasonable. And, you know, to what was your question? I'm sorry, I forget your, your final question. I had one other thing I wanted to add, but I can't remember. I'm hungover. <laughs> well, no, well, that's a good point. That's, you know, you're, you're out with friends, you're having drinks, you're having fun. I mean, is, are people aware of this stuff or are they just in their own little bubbles? I mean, I think this is there's there's kind of an awareness issue. I don't see the traditional media talking that much. Yeah, well, look, about it's what's not going to. Even now, with prices rising and items, you know, coming off of store shelves, it's going to get very real for some people in Europe when they think they're part of some collective solution by not paying their energy bills. And all of a sudden, the power goes out, you know, (laughs) it's going to get really real at that point. And then it's going to become, you know, a whole other argument about, you know, is is energy a human right? You know, and then all of a sudden there's going to be nationalization of of energy. I mean, we know the path that it's going down. It doesn't result in any in any meaningful solutions that are going to be effective. That will be anything more than, you know, a Band-Aid maybe for a couple of moments. It's a it's a treacherous path to go down over the course of the long term. But I just think that, you know, it'll start to get very real for some people when, you know, I think what's going to happen in, in U.S. equity markets is I think we're going to see like what we saw in December 2018, which is everybody's going to wake up one day and something will have gummed up the credit markets or everyone's just going to have a collective realization that interest rates are too high or, you know, there will be a straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of in terms of you know, a mass deleveraging of sorts. And everybody's going to realize that the market is still at a Schiller PE of 31 or 32, wherever it's at. People are going to have this aha, oh shit moment that, you know, equities, your last guest makes a great point about the earnings cliff that we're going to see this upcoming year. I mean, I think equities are still extremely speculative and extremely risky here. And I think that that type of moment is is on its way. And, you know, I wrote an article last week on my Substack called Capitulation is Coming, because since the beginning of this sell-off, since the beginning of, you know, I guess the inflationary sell-off, even before the Russia-Ukraine thing was a, was a news item, you know, things have kind of been orderly of sorts in terms of selling off. And then you know, we had this little bear market rally over the summer where I guess people are either expecting a Fed pivot or just saying, okay, the worst is behind us. And man, everybody's so, so, so eager to say that the worst is over and that we, you know, we finally turned the corner and, uh, you know, the asymmetric risk is only in one direction now. But for me, it's still impossible. I mean, how do you justify buying equities with valuations where they are now? But for some, you know, select value equities, maybe, or equities tied to commodities. I mean, how, how do you justify putting on risk with valuations where they are right now and with the f- fall off in earnings that we're going to see over the next year or so? I think a market sell-off will, you know, smack a lot of people in the mouth. I think that if prices continue to rise, it's already gotten very real for a lot of people. You know, everyday prices have risen. When the power starts going out in Europe, it's going to get even more real. You know, there's plenty of ways for the shit to still hit the fan here. And I think not everybody is, you know, immersed in the world of news and politics and finance like we are. You know, for us, it's it's been real for months. You know, for me, I was talking about price hikes. You know, I was writing about it a year ago when I saw that 
crab shack on the boardwalk, you know, with no supply due to rising prices. I was like, okay. So like, you know, the everyday person walks past that and says, okay, well, they're just out of stock. You know, I walk past that and I say, well, this is like a harbinger for something that's on its way. I think all of this stuff is now making its way through you know, our kind of collective ethos here. And the next step after us is going to be is going to be the everyday American, the, the person that wouldn't normally care about things like this, would choose not to care, would choose not to get involved in reading, writing about it because they're busy leading their lives or doing other things. They're going to have no choice but to confront it when it gets real for them. And then, you know, then we're going to have some real oh shit moments, I think. Again, everybody, make sure you follow Chris Irons, check out his podcast and sign up to his Substack. I mean, it's a real pleasure to have him, Doomberg, and everybody up here, obviously. I want to go back to Deerpoint. And so, so Deerpoint, I want to go back to you because you shared this point about credit default swaps. I haven't really tracked credit default swaps in a while. And by in a while, I'm really referring to since 2008. Okay, but I'd like to, to hear some of your analysis on credit strain, in particular in emerging economies, because I've been on this point here for last several months that I think there is a sovereign debt crisis coming, but you never really know from where, but the way that currencies are moving would suggest that that's the case. So dear point, maybe riff on that a little bit, and then I'm going to go to, to Jim Bianco for some out of thought, shrub, and, and again, try to rotate around here. Go ahead, dear point. Yeah, I actually posted something. It's it's now up in the nest. That's actually the Bank of Canada. Canada's five-year credit default swap, it's it's pitiful. It, it trades like Portugal or Spain, yet Canada has a AAA-rated balance sheet. So the Bank of Canada, because they're hiking this week, has, has quite the needle to thread. But credit default swaps, I think we're seeing strain all over the world. I, I haven't looked as much at emerging markets because like they, they get so like out of control of like credit default swaps there that it's it's I mean, you're talking like you know, some of those are trading at like, you know, six, seven hundred percent, right? It's 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 just absolutely nuts. But once you start to at least look at things that are are more easily like let's say quantified at first, what you kind of thought was okay, credit defaults are are, are rising. Is this due to the banking sector? In in the sense that you know, as as loan impairment charges start to increase, that that comes on the back of deteriorating asset quality. But usually, when that happens, the move in credit default swaps is is relatively tame. What we've seen is we've seen like a doubling or tripling, depending on what you're looking at within some of these credit default swaps in like a period of like, you know, the beginning of the year, which is an, an absolutely massive move. So once you start to look at, you know, credit default swaps, I, I think that, again, just using it as kind of a proxy of looking at what is the probability or what is the market pricing and is the probability of possible of possibility of default, I think is is pretty telling. And I mean, like I said, you're seeing credit default swaps rise in Canada. That's up in the nest. You're seeing credit default swaps rise. And that's actually the sovereign credit default swap. That's not even the bank credit default swap. But if, if you start to look at, you know, credit default swaps across the board, I, I think a lot of them are kind of telling us that there is a lot of strain within financial markets around the world. Speaking of that strain, that's a good pivot to Jim Bianco. And then I'm going to go to Wall Street Silver, Tracy, back to, jo to Josh, and then bunch of others and we're going to keep the space going here and again everybody make sure you follow everybody here at the top <laughs> follow me as well jim I, I know you've got a lot of history in the bond market obviously you track credit markets let's talk about what's happening here from your vantage point and let's relate it to some of what dear point has been saying around the credit default swap side yeah i think what i'd like to do is start with the big picture what's been going on in the last 20 years and how do we got to this point and i'll start with that there's prior to the pandemic there was three 
major bubbles, but none of them were financial market bubbles. They were just expressed in the financial markets. The first one was cheap labor. We got that through massive immigration worldwide, and we saw the consequences of cheap labor going all the way back to Michael Douglas's movie in the 90s, falling down through the financial crisis, through Occupy Wall Street, through the Tea Party movement, through Brexit, through Trump, that stagnant real wages. And that we there was always somebody willing to come to your country and do the job for cheaper. And it held down wages. But there was an offset to that. And that was the second bubble. And that was cheap goods from China. Okay, you don't get a raise, but everything at Walmart got kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to try and offset that. And the whole globalization movement. A third bubble was going on at the same time, and that was cheap energy from Russia. Europe, being bureaucratic, slow and expensive, had a big advantage that they were getting dirt cheap energy from Russia. They were able to compete with the manufacturing sector with the rest of the world. What we're seeing now is all three of those events, bubbles, have come to a head and they're all changing. We've seen this going all the way back many, many years to Trump are, you know, having his uh, trade wars with China. We've seen this through the worries above all the way back to Brexit and on forward about immigration. And now what we're seeing is the third one of that tripod is getting kicked out, and that is cheap energy from Russia. So what I'm trying to argue here, and I'm going to say this in a very positive way, there is an epic change going on because all three of those are done. Immigration that's going to lead to cheap labor is done. Cheap goods out of China or rest of Asia is largely done. And could it be any more clear that cheap energy out of Russia is done? We're not going back to any of those. The world has to restructure. The world has to change. And that's what I think we're seeing. Now, throw in the pandemic in 2020. And what did it do? I think it did like every other pandemic ever did. It took the trends in place and sped them up. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, I've talked a lot about work from home as another one of these trends, about the attitudes of work has changed. Nick Bloom of Stanford University sums, sums it up well. He says, the trend that we've seen from work from home has been in place for 20 years. What we did in 2020 was we sped it forward 25 to 30 years. I think what we did with the, the trends of immigration, cheap energy, and cheap goods is we jumped ahead 15, 20, 25 years. And now we need to see the world restructure for this new reality. But the problem is a lot of people don't want to accept that there's a new reality. They want to argue that 2019 is coming back. You look today's Wall Street Journal, yesterday's New York Times. The whole, all of the captains of financial industry are pushing that starting tomorrow, they want everybody back in the office. Nothing has changed. 2019 can now return and we can continue on like everything else. We want to believe that there's nothing is ultimately going to change when it comes to cheap energy for Europe. We just have to get through this winter and we'll be fine. And we want to believe that nothing has changed when it comes to cheap, to immigration leading to cheap labor. I think all of those have changed. That is going to present tremendous opportunity for us that understand those changes. I've likened this to being very similar to post-World War II. The big difference is in 1947, everybody knew the world changed. Nobody was walking around going, when am I going to get my job back making Sherman tanks and fighter planes like I had in 1944? That world was over. We were moving forward with a new world. Today, it's very similar. The big difference is a lot of people, like the captains of financial industry, are walking around going, when is 2019 going to return? A lot of economists on Wall Street are saying, 
This is a one-time surge of inflation that will go away in a year or two and be done with forever. This surge of inflation is because the world is out of balance and there's a lot of frictions. It will go away once we've spent trillions of dollars to restructure the world economy. Similarly, the supply chain. Oh, just hold your breath and wait and the supply chain will fix itself. It will fix itself after we recognize the world has changed, we need a different supply chain, and we spend trillions of dollars to restructure the supply chain. That will present a lot of opportunities for people that are investing. But if you're waiting for some kind of mean reversion, well, the market went down a lot and now it's going to go up a lot. Looking over the next month or two or three, that could definitely be the case. But over the bigger picture, it will continue with this economic and financial market volatility till we get about understanding the post-pandemic world, the end of those three bubbles, and we start arguing and we start understanding and moving towards how to restructure the economy moving forward from here instead of looking backwards, waiting and hoping that history comes back to 2019 returns. And, and further to the point that we're not uh, going back to the 2019 type of world, I want to get Wall Street Silver up here, who always has uh, a number of great tweets showing videos on the ground of some of these protests and the societal unrest that's happening outside a lot of the developed economies. Wall Street Silver, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself and, and chime in some thoughts here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've really been sort of kicking around what the root cause of all this. It's it's something Doomberg said, the European leadership just seems to be taking every opportunity to make every incorrect decision. And after a while, you sort of have to ask yourself, it's either one of two things. They're either economically illiterate or this is being done on purpose. They know what's going on and they're doing it anyways on purpose. And you got to ask yourself at this point which one it is. And I'm sort of starting to leaning towards they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. This is on purpose. And they really are trying to push this over the edge. And I don't know if the, you know, the, the root cause of that is perhaps they know everything has to be reset. They know they can't get out of this. And they just want to use Russia as a scapegoat, perhaps. But I'm really sort of leaning to that. It's not something where, oh, these guys are just sort of clueless, bumbling buffoons and and just don't know what they're doing. I think they do know what they're doing. And, you know, it sort of hurts to, you, you sort of can't believe it, but it really seems to be the conclusion you have to arrive after a while. Even if you look at the polling numbers in Germany, even the Green Party support, the Green Party that's in charge of the economic ministry and the, the foreign ministry right now, and part of the governing coalition, even their voters want to leave the nuclear power plants on, and they still won't do it. So it, it, it's it's sort of mind-boggling that they still keep running off the cliff like this. And back to what Jim Bianco just said, I want to just make a comment on inflation's not going low. I, I agree 100% with what he was just saying. All of the drivers that were keeping inflation low over the past you know, 30, 40 years since the early 80s, they've all gone away. I'm, I'm not going to repeat every all the points he just made, but even if we have a deep recession, I don't think that's going to get inflation back down to 2%. We're in, a, we're in a world that's the new normal for inflation is probably at some level that's higher. I don't know if that's 4 or 5% is, is, is what's possible. But as soon as the, the recession ends, and I don't know if that's 2023, 2024, whatever, you're going to see inflation come, if they don't fix the underlying problems, and they're not fixing them, if they don't fix the underlying problems, inflation is going to come roaring back to 10% plus, you know, I just saw a Goldman Sachs estimate that 
it could be we could peak out above 20% inflation. These things are I, there's no real good solution here. And the current leadership obviously doesn't have what it takes to fix it. And I, I question whether they even want to fix it at this point. I, I think they're trying to push it all over the edge. That's just my thoughts right now. Yeah, and, and I've, I've struggled and wrestled with that that myself. And But the, you know, the market also, I'll just give you a counterpoint, there's an interesting dynamic also in terms of the market also pushing us to the edge here, which is that if 30-year yields were to keep rising at the speed they've been rising as stocks continue to go through a drawdown, that also is a setup for some kind of you know disastrous economic situation where you end up having this double whammy of tax receipts collapsing because risk assets are not going higher and higher interest expense on that when you already have in the US 30 trillion of, of debt, never mind the unfunded liabilities, never mind Europe, never mind all the other debt dynamics. So I don't think it's that far-fetched of an argument that maybe there is some calculated aspect to this that they know there's no way out. So try to force the the end game in quotes. I'm not one of those guys that necessarily believes in the great reset, but I can sympathize with a lot of those those viewpoints. I want to get to Josh Young, and then I'm going to try to rotate again to to Tracy and and Shrub and Chris here. Josh, you've been listening to a lot of this. You've got quite a name, obviously, in the oil and gas space, and we did a space not too long ago talking about dynamics in the energy sector. In the context of what Wall Street Silver was saying, how critical is our, our policymakers' decisions here to <laughs> to prevent effectively the end of the world, right? Which maybe they actually want. But go ahead, Josh, if you want to add some thoughts there. Great. Yeah, no, this is a super interesting space. I appreciate you having me up and a lot, lot of different perspectives. So, so there's there's sort of two things I'd say on this. So one, from a sort of financial and investment perspective, the way I see it, and this isn't advice for anyone, but I, I think it's it's important to not get too negative or bearish under almost any circumstance. And I know that's like not a very popular thing to say, and it doesn't get a lot of sort of views or likes or whatever. But when you think about, you know, someone earlier was talking about having predicted COVID, which, you know, I, I, is a complicated thing to have said. But, you know, even if you in January of 2020 looked at it and said, man, this is going to be devastating for X, Y, or Z reasons, 18 months later, 20 months later, you were much better off having bought in January of 2020 than having correctly predicted a market drawdown. And then, you know, just being scared, feeling validated, and then not buying more in April or June or whatever, 2020. So just purely from an investment perspective, if you look back over time, you know, there have been moments of sort of peak, like bubble valuations and frenzy in the market and participating in the market at those sort of peak moments, easy in retrospect, has been a mistake. But but generally, the more people are negative, the more negative headlines there are, I think the more interesting things get from a positive perspective. And I understand this is going to age probably very poorly, <laughs> or there's a good chance that in a few months, this will sound terrible, but maybe in a few years, this will sound great. So I just want to, like, I put out a lot of stuff on the energy crisis and I've thought this might happen for a while and I've shared different perspectives on it. But even with that happening, it doesn't mean that stock markets or financial assets might do terribly, it just means that they might do terribly for a little while and that there's still sort of very promising things from a long-term perspective. From a short-term perspective, yeah, I think it's like, I think less from a financial and more just what might happen to people living in Europe, what might happen here in the US and elsewhere. I mean, there is there is a shortage. And when there's a shortage, the right way to solve it is by encouraging more production of energy, not less. And by trying to constrain energy production still, 
even like Dunberg was saying, on while this was happening, there was news that came out on German nuclear plants not being continued. And Macron came out and said he was in favor of energy profits tax, where they're going to heavily tax energy. It sounds like energy producers in Europe to redistribute money to Europeans. In that context, there's going to be a lot of pain because Again, in a shortage, you want to provide more of something. You don't want to kill demand or prevent the availability of it. So again, sort of from a financial perspective, I think longer term, it generally pays off to be bullish and optimistic and to understand that while this could be painful, it too will likely pass. But at the at the same time, in the shorter term, especially for sort of individual people's lives, this could get very ugly and we're, the, the problems are still getting worse. They're not starting to get better. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that kind of dovetails to Tracy's point, and I want to go to Tracy in a second, but I always use that line that opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future, right? So we all get things right, we all get things wrong, but for the most part, nobody can really tell what tomorrow brings. You can identify conditions that make something likely to happen, but for the most part, we're all basing things based on some degree of hindsight and some assumption that causation continues and correlations continue because of that causation. You're right. You've got to not be overly pessimistic because, you know, it's like I tweeted out before. Well, I guess it's the end of the world again. Right. You never know how this stuff plays out. But but Tracy, let's let's talk about that point about opportunities again in the energy space, because I'm very much on the on the side that I think most people are now, which is that you are probably in this secular cycle of investments going to things as opposed to services that are going into commodities as opposed to tech Talk about some of the opportunities that you're seeing beyond what is most popular in the oil and gas space. Are there certain areas that are now underpriced, fairly priced? Just talk about some of your observations on the on the space for a minute. Well, I think you should look at the agriculture industry because I don't think the fertilizer spike has quite finished yet. I mean, we just saw Zati, Yara, Norris, Hydro, all in Europe, Poland and Slovenia just had to shut down plants. So I think agriculture, we're still going to see ongoing problems in that. So I think there is still a way to capture that, even though this sounds horrible, because I don't want to make it sound horrible, but but I think there's still, you know, I think that agriculture is still a very good opportunity going forward, right? Because not only the fertilizer problem, but we're also seeing fertilizer curbs, within the Netherlands and in Canada, which is exactly what brought Sri Lanka to where it is now. So that's an industry I would look to as a long-term investor. I'd also be looking to metals and minings because for some reason, the EU, the West, is not giving up on their diehard green plan. They're gung-ho forward, even in the midst of this entire crisis and turning back to coal and turning back to natural gas which they, you know, once wanted to phase out. I mean, they're closing nuclear plants and reopening coal plants. So even in this landscape, they're still diehard on this green plan. So looking forward, we have to look at, you know, we have to look at metals and metals miners for all of these metals that are going to create wind turbines and solar panels and EVs. So, you know, I think to me, I think that's going to be the next major problem because even starting into to going back to what Doomberg said, when we're talking about the problems with the energy market in the EU that started well beyond the Ukraine invasion, 
it was started last fall. I mean, last fall, we started to see zinc smelters, aluminum smelters all start to curb or shut down. And that's continued throughout this last year almost. And so we're going to need those metals to move this to whatever their ESG green goals are. And so I think those two areas are what you should be looking at specifically because we're already in an aluminum deficit. We're already in a copper deficit and all of these things, nickel deficit, because what we're looking at is we look at the oil industry, right? And I've talked about this a million times on Twitter. You know, we've had seven years of lack of CapEx. Well, the metals industry has had six years of lack of CapEx. It's the same situation going forward. And everybody says, not in my backyard. Let's produce this, but let's not do it in my backyard. Nobody wants a lithium mine in their backyard. Have you seen a lithium mine? It's pretty ugly. So... I think that's really the next, I think that's where we're really going to see the next problem. I want to give credit to LaShrub, who made one of the greatest calls of all time in saying that uh, we will definitely not have a Black Monday in the stock market uh, on Labor Day. So, so Shrub, you're, I know you joke about this stuff, but you're also very thoughtful <laughs> on this stuff as well. Um, Never short a quiet market, they say. <laughs> it's one of it's one of the old time greats. But but you know, one of your things I know you joke about it, but it's it's a truism in general when it comes to investing is keep it simple, right? Keep a simple shrub, right? So from an investment perspective, what are some of the the things that you think people in the audience should be paying attention to in terms of the biggest driver of returns to keep things simple? Because again, I go back to the start of the conversation. There are so many crises hitting at once, it's very easy to not know where to focus one's attention. Yeah, so the very simple thing, Michael, is the Fed, for, for me, is the key driver for everything. So don't fight the Fed is, for me, the number one. I, I, I don't go against the Fed, and I posted a chart in the Hive that showed for the last two years, we've had the Fed buying $120 billion of, of assets, and now the last three months, we had the Fed buying 40, sorry, selling $47 billion of assets, but we didn't really see the impact of that. And since And as of September 1st, they're going to be doing 90 billion of assets. And I think Andy Constance was, ma was ma making the point that this week is going to be a bit light. I mean, look, so to me, it, it's very, very simple. QE means suppressed volatility and higher asset prices and actually higher yields, right, in some ways. And then QT, which is the regime we're in, should mean higher volatility, lower liquidity, and it should mean lower yields as well, which is, again, the paradox that you and I have discussed in the past, which might correct at some point. So if I was going to choose one thing that would drive returns for me in the future for my overall portfolio, it would be the, the Fed's path. That's why, you know, don't fight the Fed is the number one mantra that someone should have and that I've been having for a while now. And kept me bearish because, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, with a very low unemployment number and a very high inflation number, the Fed is just going to stay hawkish. It's just as simple as that. I want to just encourage everybody again, please make sure in the space you follow every single one of the speakers here, Bianco, Chris, Josh, George Noble, and I have a couple of shrub, Deerpoint, Tracy, Wall Street Silver. And hopefully follow me as well as I do these spaces daily, although this one's uh, 
much larger than the ones I do before, because usually I focus on just one speaker, but I wanted to get a whole bunch of different ones for this conversation. Uh, again, my name is Michael Guyad. Feel free to follow me here. Uh, I want to go back to Chris for a moment, then I'm going to go to George and then Jim. Chris, so, uh, you know, again, I go back to I- implementation is what matters. Path matters more than prediction. And I, I know you've been on this this peak prosperity theme for a while. Uh, and again, you've been largely right, but you still, again, have to manage through it. So I'm curious for you, you yourself, where do you put your capital risk when you see everything that's going on here? Talk about some of the things that you do with your own personal liquidity. Oh, sure. Glad to. So A, I, I put it into cows and chickens and acreage. I started buying trees on the hoof, as it were, forest land a number of years ago, because I, I thought that we would get to the position that Germany's in right now, where, of course, you know, cordwood is, is followed as a derivative of oil prices and gas prices almost perfectly with a little bit of a lag. So I see that as like an extraordinary opportunity going forward as well. I Oil and gas, I'm just, I couldn't be a, a bigger bull on that and plus uranium. So, you know, John Podesta taking over clean energy aside, I'm sure he's a genius. He's going to do a great job being very sarcastic there. I think that this is a moment where we have to consider that things are really different. I know, I know those are dangerous words. This time is never different. But maybe it is. And here's my thesis. 2017, Beijing Petroleum University in China comes out and says, "Ah, hey, we're going to hit peak oil in in our own country. And they had by 2016. And maybe they find more, but that's the situation for them. And they now import well over 10 million barrels per day, more than they produce. Two, we had Russia's interior ministry come out and say, ah, looks like 2019 might kind of be it. And for peak oil, and I believe that's true. And this whole lack of investment and plus shutting in the fields like they're doing right now is not going to be constructive for their future output. So that might be it. And then, of course, we had Macron, Sato Voice, come out and, you know, say straight to the cameras off camera to Biden that, you know, the UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia had both said, we're going to be hitting capacity output maximums, which is peak oil in a longer term. Right. So so once I think the world gets its mind around that. It's nothing but who has access to these resources. It, it's, you know, the United States has a narrative running that's false, that we're Saudi Arabia, Saudi America, you know, we're producing way more than we need. We export. It's not true. Once you get past the sleight of hand they did by confusing crude and condensate with all liquids, that, that just bothers me to no end as an analyst. When you just strip it back, United States produces about 12 and a half million barrels per day of crude and condensate. And we run about 18 million barrels a day through our refineries. And we export some of that. I get it. But our country is in no way going to be back to that Saudi America construct anytime soon. And when I talk with CEOs of actual shale companies, they say, look, it's not hard. We have this much acreage. We can either rip through it and destroy capital, as Doomberg was saying, which they did in chasing production, or we can be more responsible to shareholders and nurse this out. Bottom line is we're not, we're not going back to those 30% year-over-year production increases, and, and we can plot where I, – I have a very hard time. I've, the United States could sustainably produce 12.5 million barrels a day for another decade or two. But you know, Wall Street Journal's on that. I, I just think the world hasn't quite wrapped its head around that concept. And But by world, I'm really talking Europe, U.S. China gets it. I've talked to some very high-level people in China. They get it. They understand resources. The whole Belt and Road initiative is all about the resource story. I think this is the one thing that the United States and a lot of its Western allies are way behind the curve on. They're about to get a super education on that in Europe this winter. And because I can't predict how any of this is going to turn out, my investment thesis wraps around three words. I told you about the simpler thesis. Well, things are also going to become harder and more expensive. 
So those three things, simpler, harder, more expensive. Now, what I mean by harder, if we took in 2019 and said, hey, how many human equivalents of output did fossil fuels grant our species that year? The answer is it's as if we had 489 billion human slaves running around doing stuff for us. And that's a lot of fun, right? You know, and that's wrapped up in ships carrying stuff across the, the ocean and planes bringing, you know, grapes from Chile. It, it's wonderful. But they were those 468 billion slaves were operating without us thinking about them. As we head into more expensive energy, we're just going to use less of it. It's going to be as if magically, you know, peel off a 10 billion slaves here, 10 billion slaves there, and life just gets harder. Things that were easier before are mysteriously more difficult now. And then, of course, the more expensive part is a derivative of that. I consider fossil fuels to be the master resource. Everything else is a derivative thereof. And as those get more expensive, it just bleeds into everything. So wrap all that up. I have my liquid capital one place, but I'm increasingly putting my liquid capital into what I call primary and secondary forms of wealth exclusively. Primary is land, productive land, water, trees. Secondary is the means of production based off of that. So these are producing uranium companies, oil companies, things like that. That's the world as I see it right now. And honestly, I I can't believe that (laughs) that the the admission that Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is going to hit a production capacity at 13 million barrels is what they say. We'll see if they get there. But that they admitted it and it didn't immediately cause a lot of rethinking of stock markets with PEs of you know, some companies with 200s, right? You got bonds out there still yielding like a few percent single digit stuff for places like Greece and Italy. I just can't believe that this hasn't really gone in faster, deeper into the larger financial sphere. So cows, chickens, pigs, garden, that's where a lot of my effort is right now. So it really is animal farm in your, in your world. Let's go to, <laughs> let's go to uh, George Noble here. The, I showed that, that quote from animal farm, man is the only creature that consumes without producing and I often wonder if, from a longer-term perspective, George, especially given the way the younger generation, you can argue, uh, is used to consuming things digitally, if that's also part of the reason why we're in this mess. But George, go ahead and, and riff a little bit on what you're here. Thanks, Michael. Terrific space. Really, really learning a lot. is awesome. I agree with much of what's being said here. I really want to echo what Shrub was saying. I remind people, an old truism in markets, the economy is not the stock market. Stock market's not the economy. They're related, but they're different. I don't think you need to be believing in the end of the world to be negative on markets, uh, as I think was postulated earlier. Michael, you yourself have pointed out in many spaces that a lot of risk assets, the ones most liquidity dependent, already peaked out starting from February of 2021, or a year before the uh, Ukrainian invasion took place. The broader indices peaked in December, January, in December of 21, January of 22. So I've been using the phrase throughout the entire year that equities represent return-free risk. And that was going well before the Ukraine ever occurred. And I stay focused on that. Yes, of course, the Ukrainian situation and what it's done to exacerbate the energy problem and supply chain issues generally, of course, has made the situation worse. But these trends were already emerging and were in evidence before the Ukrainian invasion. Instead of believing the end of the world, if you just, again, go back and recognize that the economy is not the stock market, instead of having to believe in the end of the world to be bearish, you just wonder and say, well, gee, maybe profit margins or multiple standard deviations above normal, and that might mean revert. Maybe valuations, which were above average, have come down a ways, might still go lower as the economic downturn intensifies. Our good mutual friend, Michael Kranjewitz, is 
spoke on this point more eloquently than any of us possibly could. And that is credit, spread start to widen out, the PEs being average are not really a resting point. So maybe just the idea that margins will mean revert. And if you don't believe they're going to mean revert, then I think it means you believe capitalism is broken. And then maybe the idea that average valuations are not necessarily the final resting point, given all the economic problems we have, not to mention the geopolitical problems. Maybe the idea that you know the, the economic downturn is just getting started, the idea that inflation is going to be higher, not lower going forward, that economic volatility is going to be higher, not lower going forward. And then most importantly, what Shrub said, it's all about the Fed, that maybe QT would have more QT and less QE. All these factors fall short of, woefully short of believing the end of the world, but still add up in my book to outlook of equities represent return-free risk, and that one should be very defensive in the way they're positioned. And if it turns out, you know, we do get these dire outcomes, you know, so be it. But I don't, those aren't necessary in order for one to have a negative view towards capital markets. We could be in an era where, I believe we'll be in an era where flat will continue to be the new up. Talk about what the crowd believes. Yes, it's true in FinTwit, which I would argue is not really representative of the way investors are positioned, or sentiment polls, which is not really representative of the way people are positioned. People may talk bearishly, but they're not positioned bearishly. Retail has hardly sold a darn thing relative to the massive buying we saw in 2021. You look at hedge fund positioning, yes, it's down in comparison to the last three or four years. But if you zoom out and look at, say, the last dozen years, going back to the beginning of the post-grade financial crisis era, you know, if 55% net long is a new flat, well, I guess maybe the world has changed. So I, I continue to believe that equities are very unattractive. Yes, selectively within markets. Yes, I have sympathy to the energy long. I'm just concerned right now about cyclical aspects to that. But if you stop and think that, you know what, no more excess liquidity, because as Shrub would talk about, it's all about the Fed. No more excess liquidity for a market which, which, which is starving for excess liquidity. That means to me that, you know, you want to avoid long duration assets, you know, loss making high PE companies, crypto, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and the duration of the equity market, you know, is, is, is maybe not compared to what was a year ago, but compared to over the last few decades has never been higher at a time when, in my humble opinion, rates, the trend in rates is still flat to up. So I remain bearish, but it's not predicated on a view that the world's coming to an end. Thank you, Michael. No, and that's great, George. And I want to go to Jim on that because George made this point that the stock market's not the economy, but maybe the bond market is closer to the economy than the stock market. Jim, when you when you think about this point about economic volatility, which is very much the age of turbulence as opposed to the age of moderation, again, from your vantage point, given all your years of experience in the bond market and the stock market, what do you think investors should be doing in this kind of environment? Because look, let's face it, the only real things that have worked have been oil, shorting stocks, and cash. Shorting and going cash really doesn't work over time, at least from a systematic perspective, although they tend, they've obviously worked this year. But talk about the opportunity set that you think investors should be focused on in an era of wider economic outcomes. Yeah, I think I'm going to follow up on something that George just said as well. Let me start with, with the bond market. 20 years of no inflation, and we were able to just distort the living hell out of the bond market through endless QE. And it resulted in its ultimate absurdity was negative interest rates, which we saw in Europe, basically, and in Japan. And to this day, we still have about $2 trillion worth of negative interest rates in primarily Japan. The rest of the world, it's gone. So the bond market was hopelessly broken 
going into this period. And I think as a result of that, I've been very public on record that I think the 40-year bull market and bonds ended in March of 2020, when we hit 50 basis points intraday on the 10-year note. And I think we're in a period now of a multi-year rise of, of interest rates. So when you look at the bond market, it's got a lot of things. I think it was maybe Shrub that was talking about that the liquidity in the bond market is on a good day, it's terrible. And usually other days, it's worse than that. So it's got some real problems on its hands. Now, you could see that in the stock market and you could see that in other risk markets, because what is the one thing that seems to just get markets going at this point? Is it earnings? Is it the outlook? Is it economic data? No, it's liquidity. It's the idea that the Fed will pivot and you get a rally in, in stocks. You get a rally in risk, in high yield, because the liquidity is going to return to this market. What is it that dashes that liquidity? Is an eight-minute speech in Jackson Hole that says there's going to be no pivot. The market falls apart on that news. So what does that tell you right there? This market is not paying attention to anything that would be considered traditional fundamentals. It is just a junkie waiting for its next liquidity fix. And the problem is the pusher, being the Fed, isn't ready to give them their next liquidity fix. That is not a good long-term situation for the market. Yeah, you might get a situation where you could get a liquidity injection or the perception of a liquidity injection, and you can get another, you know, another high in the market coming. But longer term, if you're investing in, or if your idea of investing is in buying good ideas and reasonable valuations and wait for them to work out, this is not what's happening in this market right now. And so I think it's been very difficult for investors because the thing that I think has made this market so hard is not the extent of the sell-off, although that has been big, but it's been the fact that the traditional relationship between bonds and stocks for the last 20 years has fallen apart. Both bonds and stocks are down collectively by the most since I can find good statistics into the early 70s that you've, you know, basically in the two big asset classes, it's just been a, an exercise of managing losses. And even if you expand that out to emerging market bonds and, and you know, world of global bonds and emerging market stocks and global stocks, same thing there as well, too, is that there hasn't been much of anything. Now, the problem that this market is going to go through is the Federal Reserve and all central banks. This week is going to be a big week for all central banks, because highlighted with the ECB probably hiking 75 basis points on the 8th, the rest of these central banks are going to get very, very aggressive in hiking rates because they've been behind the curve, followed up in two weeks by the Fed. And if you believe the probabilities that are being expressed on the WARP page or the CME FedWatch website, there's better than a 50% chance that the Fed's going to hike by another 75 basis points, taking the funds rate to three and three and a quarter. So if this market, you know, riffing off of what George was saying, if, if all this market has going for it is liquidity and the hope that liquidity will return, and that seems to be the way it's been trading, it's not going to get that anytime soon. And so now it's going to have to come back and start thinking about making the case that something represents value or represents a good idea. In this world of these valuations that we've seen, it's really hard to make that case as well. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a phenomenal way of framing it. Everybody here, again, please make sure you follow every single one of the speakers here. 
As we start to wrap up, I want to try something a little bit different. I want to have every single speaker talk about from their vantage point what they think people on FinTwit underestimate underestimate about the current environment and what may be to come. Doesn't have to be all gloom, obviously. But I want to hear what everybody thinks everyone else should be focusing on. So I'll start off with Deerpoint. Uh, Deerpoint, from from what you've seen on FinTwit and from your own analysis, what do you think people are underestimating about the current environment? I, I would say how how big of, of a role, sorry, a liquidity plays in the global financial system. And this this idea that I, I would say broadly that the Fed can continue without seriously breaking something somewhere in the globe. Let's go to Wall Street Silver. I think I, I know what Wall Street Silver is going to say, but what do you think people are underestimating about the current environment at Wall Street Silver? Oh, what do you think I'm going to say? Uh, that, that you're going to have some kind of revolution or a bull market in revolutions, I think. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not that much of a doomer. I think that we're going to struggle on. But hey, you know, I'm, I'm a silver and gold bull. So I think eventually confidence is going to be lost in our central banks and our governments. And then the fear trade will kick in and Gold and silver will skyrocket. That's just my opinion. Let's go to uh, Tracy. Things that people underestimate. I know a lot of people follow you, obviously, on the energy side, but what are some things that you think people are underestimating? I think people underestimate the power of the people and the human spirit. I think ESG is being exposed for the sham that it is. And I think people are waking up. And so everything is not doom and gloom. I think that we may be in for rough times, but... Uh, as a whole, as a society, as a global society, I think we could move forward from this. And, you know, we're, we're seeing the backlash against policies that have been horrible. And it, it unfortunately is going to take bad things to happen to people for them to understand that. But I think we can move forward from this. And so I have hope in people. I rarely hear that, which is I'm glad you say that it's refreshing because, again, it's you never want to bet against people because if you're betting against people, you're betting on everybody in the world. So maybe that's not exactly the right bet to make. But let's go to Josh. From your perspective, what do you think people are underestimating or Fintwit's underestimating? So I think I think the oil market is underappreciated and oil is is really mispriced here. And in the context of an energy crisis, we've been doing and work oil, on oil versus, oil versus energy stocks. Let's make that distinction. Uh, well, no, oil versus other energy-related commodities and and sort of how it's priced. We're seeing a switching from natural gas and in some cases from coal to burning oil and oil-related products for power and likely for heat this winter. And I think I think sort of quality matters to some extent, and oil is a very high-quality storage mechanism for energy. And we're starting to see this shift. I think it's being underestimated. And we're, we're doing some work on this ahead of uh, hopefully a white paper coming out soon on it. And I think I think it, it helps sort of balance the oil market and then maybe even put it into more of a deficit than than expected. So that has implications from a lot of different from a lot of different perspectives, but I'll just leave it there. Shrub, I'm gonna assume that people underestimate that the sun will rise again. So Shrub, you're up. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure the underestimate is going to rise again tomorrow and next week and the month after and the decade after. (laughs) But jokes aside, having traded and lived through three or four European crises, I can't remember how many, people underestimate that the Europeans get together and solve their crap at the very last moment, usually after their holidays are over because they take their time. So I think this time around, they will take action in the power market and power prices will collapse in Europe in the next few months. 
That's a that's an interesting one. That that would be uh, interesting to see for sure. Let's get uh, Chris up here. Chris, go ahead. Gosh, I you know my generally underappreciating commodities here. I agree with when I track the the fake paper price for oil and the, and the futures against the physical market tightness. There's there's a mismatch here. I think there's a lot of commodity mismatches that are going on at this point in time. So I think that's underappreciated. And as well, if I a derivative of that all. Wars, whatever you call wars, have been resource wars. I think the chance for social unrest here is is pretty high before things get better. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe I should have put my thought process on you as opposed to Wall Street Silver on the on the bull market in in revolutions and protests. Let's go to uh, George, and then we'll wrap up with Jim. George, th- something again. You've got a lot of experience on Wall Street. You've seen a lot of things. But what do you think people are underestimating here? I'd say two things. One. I firmly believe we are in the throes of we're witnessing a regime shit, regime change. That's a term that's been much bandied about, but you know, I'm old enough to remember when I, yeah, I started my career in 1981 when rates are still going up or peaking. And it's a much different mindset and investment regime than what we've had in the, in the last couple of decades during the great moderation. I think people talk about it, but I don't think they fully comprehend what it really means. And more importantly, I don't think they're invested for it. I think they're investing, looking through the rearview mirror. And then a corollary to that, Michael, I know you were a reader of Ibn Talib and his concepts of mediocre stand and extremist stand. And again, one doesn't have to be, you know, an extremist stand to be bearish, but I think there's a compelling case to be made or certainly believable, a credible case to be made that we're an extremist stand. And the human mind is not comfortable traveling in Extremistan. And so that's something that I just have in the back of my mind. Thank you. And then we'll uh, we'll give the uh, final word here to Jim Bianco. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, in the past 20 years, I'm talking about economics and looking at economics. In the past 20 years, prior to 2020, there was no inflation. So everybody focused all their energy on economic growth. What are jobs? What is retail sales? What is durable goods? What is earnings? And that was what they decided that Policy was driven by both monetary and fiscal. Post-2020, I think that the emphasis or the priority now is on inflation. A lot of people still have a hard time getting a handle on payroll report is of secondary importance. Earnings are of secondary importance. What is of primary importance is inflation, is commodity prices, is that outlook. That's what's driving everything. And they have a hard time believing it, which is why we had this whole episode this summer of the Fed pivot. Oh, the Fed's going to pay no attention to this inflation stuff anymore because people might lose their jobs or earnings might go down. And that's what they always respond to. Yeah, they did before 2020. That's not what they respond to now. They respond to inflation now. And I think that what FinTwit doesn't get is everything starts with inflation. It doesn't start with something else. And for whatever it's worth, I think that FinTwit's massively underestimating the return of the risk-off trade. And when I say risk-off trade, again, I'm talking selfishly here. It's the behavior of treasuries in heightened equity volatility. The hell this year, I keep saying this, which the hell for anybody that's allocating capital, is very simple. The diversifier, treasuries acted like equities. It's what threw off the entire sequence of volatility dynamics and the quote-unquote safe haven risk-off trade. I've used that term many times, Phoenix rising. I'm still waiting for that Phoenix to rise. But I do think that people are underestimating the potential that treasuries, again, act as that safe haven. By the way, that doesn't necessarily go against the narrative of higher rates or a secular bear market for bonds, because even in the 70s, you had periods where stock market went down hard, volatility increased, treasuries acted much better than equities, down less, or even made money. 
but we got to break this this dual drawdown correlation that's been beyond an anomaly in the way that equities have and treasuries have interacted this year. So everybody here, again, make sure you follow everybody up top here. I'll try and do these types of bigger spaces periodically with different thought leaders as I keep on building out my own roster of speakers for Lead Lag Live. Thank you, everybody, for enjoying this conversation. Go read Animal Farm, okay, and enjoy Labor Day, because if you don't enjoy the here and now, it doesn't matter what inflation is going to look like tomorrow. Thank you, everybody. Really do appreciate all the speakers here, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.